Well, this morning's sermon gets at one of the difficult aspects of the Christian life. This story gets at one of those aspects, and that is that if you're a believer, especially in the modern world, uh, oftentimes we have to hold a tension between what we know is true and what feels true. Uh, That's because we live in a world where we're taught to make so much out of our feelings that we almost identify with our feelings. And so if what we're reading in the Word doesn't feel true, it's hard to believe it. And so a lot of times I'll hear people even say, okay, I know that's true, but that doesn't feel true right now, right? And so uh, an engaged couple, for instance, may be reading the Word and may be active in a church and they may say, okay, we, we know God's plan for purity before marriage. We understand God's plan for marriage. But we just, we just love each other so much that it feels like we should be sleeping together, right? What feels true and what the Word says is true, they just feel different. There's tension there. Uh, this can happen in all kinds of places in the Christian life. And the one that we're hitting at today is that sometimes you really hope for something and those hopes get dashed and you feel like God isn't with you. You feel like God must be upset at you or that thing you wanted that was coming and didn't come would have come your way. Uh, the Proverbs say, uh, hope deferred or expectation deferred makes the heart sick. Uh, and that basically means when you're really looking forward to something and you think it's going to come and then it doesn't come, it makes your heart grieve and cry out in, in sickness. And, and you can sometimes feel like God is against you, like he's not working for you. Otherwise, I would have got that thing, right? You know, I thought I was going to get promoted. I went down and had that meeting with the boss where I thought he was going to promote me and I was going to hear what the new salary was, and he fired me, right? Oh, doesn't feel like God's with you, does it? Like you thought you were going to get a thing and you didn't. It doesn't feel like he's with you. Well, we're walking now through the ending of the book of Genesis, and we've met a man now named Joseph, and he is in that very spot. He had some incredible dreams that seemed to tell him that he was going to be the ruler of one of the greatest families on earth. And in fact, it looked for a moment like maybe he would be ruling over many, many people. And so this is his hope and his expectation. He's the heir now of his family. His father favors him. So he's thinking, I'm going to be on top soon in this family. Father's already kind of put me in charge. And instead, in a moment, in a day, his brothers betray him, throw him in a pit, leave him for dead. And now his hands are bound because he's been sold to slavery and he's being drug off by Ishmaelites to Egypt. So... Here's a man who thought he was about to be on top of everything, and now he is at the very bottom, being led away as a slave slave to a foreign nation. Now, if you're just joining us, we're walking through his story now, and we are finding that Joseph is a man who's being made like Jesus in many ways that Christians today are made like Jesus. And so we're finding on one hand that a lot of us can identify with his sufferings, But that's not because you're like Joseph, that's because Joseph is like Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you're being made like Jesus too. In fact, the whole book so far has been teaching us to expect a mighty Savior King to come and fix all of the problems that were brought into the world when we fell into sin. And we've been wondering, what will he be like? And now we know he's going to come from Jacob. He's going to be one of Jacob's descendants. And looking at Jacob's sons, we're kind of looking at, could one of these be the one? Now, as Christians, we know who this mighty Savior King is, right? We know that it's Jesus, and we know Jesus' story. So when we look back, and we see the story of a man who was betrayed by his 12 brothers closest to him and sold for silver, 
and then was lied about and brought very low through false accusation, but then was lifted up above everybody and had people from all nations come to him and bow before him to receive the bread of life and had someone else that he loved run back and shout, he is still alive. Well, we know who this Joseph looks like. We, we recognize a figure like that. That sounds a lot like Jesus Christ. And so what we're finding here is that this mighty Savior King is going to come from Judah's line, and that's a little confusing after the story we looked at previously, but it'll make sense one day, but he's going to look like Joseph. And so we're finding ways that he is becoming like Jesus and ways that we, in many cases, are made like him as well. So we look here and we say, well, where is God when my hopes are dashed? Is there any insight from Joseph's story into that? And could it teach me anything about Jesus Christ. Let's start with verses 1 through 6, and we'll read the first half of verse 6. In most Bibles, that's the first paragraph of chapter 39. We're not going to read the whole thing together. We'll break it into chunks. Genesis 39, verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and in field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So we're seeing here that what was promised in the last three generations in Genesis is true. Now, uh, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, back in chapter 12, was called to leave where he was and go to a frightening new place, and the Lord told him, I will be with you. And then in the next generation, Jacob, Joseph's grandfather, Isaac, was facing a great famine in that new promised land, and he was going to have to leave and go somewhere else for a time, and the Lord told him, don't be afraid to go. I will be with you. This is when he makes those big promises to Isaac. And then in the next generation, Joseph's father, Jacob, is on the run from his twin brother Esau, who wants to kill him, and he's got to go back uh, somewhere else, and he's scared, doesn't have anything. He's laying out in the desert with nothing but a rock and a staff to call his own, and the Lord appears to him and says, don't be afraid to go. I'll be with you. Now it is Joseph who is taking a scary journey. Under, he's not going under his own power, though. His hands are tied. He's being drug off as a slave to Egypt and wondering, what about those dreams that I had that I was supposed to rule this whole thing and now I'm a slave? And now the difference is the Lord is not speaking from heaven saying, I am with you. So is the Lord with him? He's not making that promise anymore. Is he out of the being with his people business? No, no. It says many times the Lord was with Joseph. And so, in the same way that his great-grandfather and his grandfather and his father prospered under that blessing, he prospers greatly under that blessing. 
This is emphasized in a few ways, and really it's the main point of this section of Genesis. The Lord is with Joseph even when he is as low as he is. The Lord stays with him. Emphasized a couple of ways. One of them is just the great detail and repetition with which this author is telling us that Joseph flourished under God's hand. It's like he's repeating himself over and over. Everything was good under his hand, and so his master put everything under his hand, and so everything flourished, and so his master put everything under All that repetition is showing this guy really prospered and flourished under God's care. I was really with him. Another way it's emphasized is that the name the Lord is used when in this part of Genesis, his name, the Lord, like that, Yahweh, is not often used. Uh, other than the last chapter, when it's used in a very similar way, we have not seen that name of God used since all the way back when Jacob was on the run from Esau many, many chapters ago. Ever since then, it's just been God did this, God did that, but, but not the Lord, not Yahweh. And now, all of a sudden, very quickly in two chapters, uh, a woman that God has chosen and finds very dear has been treated wickedly by a husband, and, and the Lord shows up and puts that husband to death. And now, real quick, right after that, Joseph is brought off into slavery, and the Lord is with Joseph. So there's some emphasis here. Ooh, ooh the, the name, the Lord, is back. God's covenant name, the name he only uses with his people, the God who keeps his covenant. He's there, and he is with Joseph. And so in those details, and the way that it's going to even be repeated again at the end of this chapter, we arrive at the first point we got today. God is with his chosen ones even when they suffer and are mistreated. If you're one of his, even if you're suffering, even if you're being mistreated, it may feel like the Lord is not with you. But we see here in Joseph's story, no, the Lord is with his chosen ones even when they suffer and are mistreated. Now, this has been happening since a few generations ago, but it happens all throughout the Bible. Uh, at another point in Scripture, God's people, Israel, are once again carted away, this time from their home country into exile in Babylon, and their hands are tied again, and they're taken across the river and forced to live in a land that's not their own in captivity. And the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, like, when you cross that river into a land that's not your own, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Right? Some of you had that memorized. I saw some of you mouth it when I said it. Right? When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. So even though they're being carted away, even though they're being oppressed, even though they've been captured, the Lord stays with him, with them. He stayed with Joseph. He stayed with Israel. Uh, when Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the desert, into the last place that you would ever think the Lord would be with him, and he's, he's brought on a scary journey to be tempted and to fast for 40 days, uh, angels were ministering to him. The Lord was with him and was ministering to him, strengthening him, allowing him to face temptation there. When he, Jesus is later in the garden praying the night, right before he's about to be betrayed, the night before he's crucified, he knows what's going to come and he's sweating blood and praying in great anxiety. And one of the gospels says that an, an angel appeared there to, to strengthen him, right? The Lord was with him even as he was about to be mistreated and do something that was scary and go on a scary journey. Uh, later on, the Apostle Paul is writing and he's talking about a time when uh, he's got to go before Roman governors. He's been persecuted and these very intimidating Roman figures like Felix and Caesar and some of these guys, he's got to go before them and testify the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he says, but the night before, an, an angel appeared by me to strengthen me, to proclaim the gospel fully. So, so his chosen ones there, when, when we're in dark hours like that, the Lord says, I am right there with you. You walk through those waters, I'm with you. Your hands are tied and you're brought down low. He says, I am with you. So it may feel like God's not with you, but if your faith is, is sure in Christ Jesus, no, the Lord is with you. Some of you may be here this morning and you may be thinking that no one else in the room knows what's really going on in my life. Like no one knows what that person is doing to me. No one else knows what that person did to me a long time ago. And it may feel like the Lord isn't near because of that. But Joseph's story takes that, it turns it right on its head and says, no, I'm even closer because of what you have been through. I am even closer because of what you are going through. This shows up in different ways in mistreated people's lives. Uh, it's not always this way like with Joseph, but sometimes it is. Joseph prospered and flourished greatly even as he was being oppressed and mistreated, even in a really difficult situation. And I have to tell you that I have seen the same thing happen too. It has amazed me how many times uh, I have known or given counsel to or pastored or shepherded, uh, particularly a woman who's mistreated by her husband or by someone in her life. And in every other area of her life, it is like the Lord is pouring out great blessing. Uh, I can remember one or two or three in the past where I'm thinking like, how are you running two successful businesses and earning an advanced degree while you are suffering all of this. Like sometimes this just happens and you think, well, what could we have? Well, what's happening is the Lord is nearer to his people when we are suffering and when we are mistreated. Now, it doesn't always look like that, though. Sometimes it's the Lord is nearer to strengthen you and give you endurance. And you look back years later and you wonder, how did I stay a Christian through all of that? Like with everything I was going through, how did my faith stay secure and, and solid? And the answer was that the Lord was by your side and he was strengthening your heart through all of that. It may come to be in very different ways, surface and manifest in different ways, but the core is always the same. When his people suffer, when his people are mistreated, when his people are going through that scary part of their lives, the Lord says, I'm drawing near, uh, I'm there, and he's right beside you. So cling to him. If, if you're going through that hour right now, if, if the point in your life is the same as the point in Joseph's life right now, cling to him, rely on him for strength, stay faithful to him, and stay on the mission that he gave you because he hasn't left your side. He's right there. All right, let's continue on. We're going to pick up right where we left off, halfway through verse 6, and we'll read the next paragraph, which goes to verse 10. Here we're going to see the main way Joseph responds to God's presence in his life. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. 
So here is Joseph's main response, at least as we see in the story, to God's presence in his life. God is near to him, and a woman who we presume must be very beautiful, married to this high officer in the kingdom, a woman who is certainly very powerful, is approaching him like this. No one would know what he does But he knows the Lord's eyes are on him. And he says, it's the Lord that's given me all this blessing. It's the Lord that's near to me. I know the Lord is watching me. How could I sin against God now with all this? So he is seeing God's presence in his life. And he is responding with faithfulness when no one else would know if he had compromised instead. So that even brings up a a second point, right? This is part of why God is near to him, and it's the way he responds to God's nearness to him. This is something taught through and through in the Bible, and it's very simply that God stays near to those who stay near to him. There's a relationship between how much we're drawing near to him in faithfulness and how close he is drawing to us. Uh, Biblical principle here from the beginning to the end, generally faithfulness brings us closer to God And sin creates a separation between us and God. This happened right when the first sin entered the world in Genesis 3. It started right then. The consequence, one of them, was they were cast out of God's presence, no longer allowed to be in Eden where God dwelled. And there's a a heavenly creature with a flaming sword guarding the gate and nobody gets back in, right? You're away from God now because you've sinned. That's Adam and Eve's consequence there. And then in the very next chapter, Cain murders his brother Abel, and the Lord sends him away even further to the east. And so we're seeing that pattern set up. Sin creates a separation between us and God. But the inverse is also true. When we turn back to him, he draws near. Like we see in the era of the kings, Israel is getting very rebellious. They're worshiping idols. But every once in a while, a faithful reforming king would rise up. King Asa or King Josiah or King Hezekiah would rise up and say, Israel, we're doing it wrong. We're not being faithful to the Lord. Let's turn back. And they would lead Israel in repentance. And every time for all three of those kings, it says, and the Lord was with him. Right? So they're drawing the people back to the Lord, and so the Lord is with them and upon them. Uh, uh, Ezra, a scribe after the, the uh, exile, he's a priest, he resolves, I'm going, to, I'm going to learn the Lord's words, and I'm going to walk in them, I'm going to teach them. Right? Three-part resolution, learn them, walk in them, teach them. And then right after that it says, and the Lord was with him. Right? So when we draw near like that, he draws near. When we pull back into sin, he pulls back away from us as well. And so, in Philippians 4, Paul writes to them, and he says, put into practice what I've taught you, and the God of peace will be with you, right? So, all this doctrine Paul's teaching, all this lifestyle that he's calling them to live, he says, put, put, put that into practice. The God of peace is going to be with you. Now, we've got, I think, a great advantage over the Old Testament saints. Some people look at this differently, but it appears to me, at least, that God is dwelling in his people now in a way that he was not then. Now, some faithful interpreters think he was then, too, but I think he was not then, and he is now. Uh, And that means that you can never walk too far if you're in Christ Jesus, right? The Lord's Spirit lives in you, and it's always going to be working some, right? But, But like a candle that can be burning a flame, or it can be just smoldering a little wick, uh, depending on whether you walk in the Spirit, whether you take the Word's instruction and walk in it and, and receive it and believe it, it kind of fuels that fire or 
quenches the fire out. So your faithfulness, your drawing nearer to the Lord, your lifestyle, uh, it kind of determines almost on a continuum, like how full of the Spirit am I? You can't quench the flame fully, but you can make it burn hotter and brighter the more faithful you are. This is the way that it tends to work in the Christian life. That's why some people, some Christians, wind up in cycles of sin that feel like addiction and we can't get out of them uh, because sin puts a separation. And then if we don't handle that through repentance, confession, through drawing back to the Lord, we can act like it's not a big deal, then we're farther from the Lord the next time the temptation hits us, right? So, so many things work this way. Cycles of anger work that way. Addiction to pornography works this way for a Christian. Uh, a Christian enslaved by worry, it works the same way. Uh, so let's, let's say that it's, that it's uh, worry. That's just a cycle of worry over and over again. The Lord tells us, don't, don't be anxious about what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on. Don't be anxious about the food you're going to eat, right? The Lord feeds the birds. So, so, so we should not be worried about these things. But let's say you, you fall into temptation and you, and you worry, right? And, and then rather than look to the Lord and say, God, I, I sinned against you. Like I fell to worry. W- would, you, would you take me back? You always do. Rather than repair that relationship, now you're, you're a little farther from God, right? And so now the next time temptation hits, you have less strength from him. Uh, and so you're, you're even more likely to worry some more, right? You're weaker than you were before, so then you worry even more. And then the Lord is a little farther from you. And then the next time temptation hits, you're even weaker because you're even farther from the Lord, so you fall even more. And so, so all sorts of sins can turn into a downward spiral for a Christian like that. How do you break that downward spiral? Um, the way you break it is you turn, I think I was going to say, turn around. Yeah, the way you break it is you, you repent, right? You send the spiral up, or how you do that? Okay, so you, you have sinned against God, you know it, you're seeing it, and what's tempting to do is to say, okay, that's not that big a deal, I'll just forget about that, sweep that under my mental rug and act like it's not so big a deal, or despair and say, the Lord will never take me back, I'm such a sinner, like I just quit, I give up, right? Instead, the Lord calls us to confess to him and to repent. Uh, David says, blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, right? In whose spirit there is no deceit. I mean, you're not deceiving yourself. You know what you did. You're not fooling yourself. You're willing to look to God and say, God, here it is in all of its ugliness. This is what I am doing. I'm not lying to myself about it. I'm not lying to you about it. I'm not hiding it from either one of us. Some sins you need to confess to the people you're sinning against. Different ones work differently. If you need to, you, you go ahead and open up and tell other people about it. Now... You're nearer to the Lord because the Lord is merciful. You're leaning on his mercy now, right? Because it's not going to work if he's not going to forgive you, right? So you're trusting he's going to forgive you. He's merciful. And now you're back close to him. Okay, now temptation hits again, but you've got her close. Now you lean on him for strength and he's right there, right? And it's not like the temptation's any less. It's still just as intense. You're still feeling it just as much. But now the Lord is near. And so when you turn to him, you're like, God, help me. I need strength right now. He's near. And so now, now you're able to withstand it. And now the cycle is broken. We've turned around and we're going back the other direction, right? So 
So through repentance, through seeing our sin, through keeping our integrity and doing right before God, we wind up in a cycle that brings us closer and closer to Him rather than farther and farther from Him. Some of you might be caught in cycles of sin, and maybe you just came here just because you needed that. Take that home with you if that's all you take home with you today. You can break that cycle by turning to His mercy, and then when temptation comes again, rely on Him for strength. All right. All right, let's finish out chapter 39 next. Things are looking up for Joseph. He's a man of integrity. The Lord is blessing him. We almost expect this thing's going to take off like a rocket any minute. Let's see what really happens, though. Verse 11. One day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So we're really expecting that things are about to take off for Joseph here in this house. I wonder what's going to happen next. We're getting all excited, and then boom, out of nowhere, right? He's faithful to the Lord, and this woman accuses him falsely and gets him thrown into prison. So again, his hopes are dashed into pieces. This time, it's in a sense even worse. He's been falsely accused and thrown into prison over it. But one of the few things worse than being a slave in Egypt would be being in prison in Egypt and falsely accused like that, hated by everyone. Everyone thinks he is a rapist for what they think he has done. But still, the Lord is with him, right? So similarly, but a little differently, we see there that God is with his chosen ones even when they are falsely accused. Yeah. So, Genesis has not been shy about sex abuse. It's talked about it in a lot of different ways. And so we have talked about it as we've walked through it. That's led to some awkward but good moments for us as a church. And here, I think this may be the last time it will be brought up in this way. We see a different angle on it today. We've seen before that it's an ancient problem, not a new problem like Twitter wants you to think. It's an ancient problem. Uh, We've seen before that the Lord is with those who are mistreated. He stands by them. Now we're seeing uh, another angle. Sometimes men are falsely accused. Sometimes faithful men that the Lord is near are falsely accused. 
And the lesson it's giving us here is that even when men like that are accused falsely, and even when we don't know what is what and what is true and what is not, the Lord is with his chosen ones even when they are falsely accused. Similar things happened to Moses. He got faced with a few accusations while he was there. His sister at one time hurls an accusation at him, but the Lord is with him. And so her hand turns as leprous as snow in a moment, and then she's healed after that. Uh, Another time, a a guy named Korah leads a rebellion against Moses with all kinds of accusations about domineering leadership and things like that. And the earth swallows up and it opens up and swallows Korah and all of his followers. Like he's getting accused falsely, but the Lord is with him. Uh, David, before he was king, was accused falsely by Saul of things like treason and unfaithfulness. And Saul even hunted his life over false accusations that people were telling him, he's so faithful, how could you say that? But Saul's after him anyway, and the Lord is with David. He preserves David's life. And even Jesus himself, in his faithfulness, was accused falsely, right? drugged before courts, all kinds of false charges put in front of him. And eventually, a victim of mob justice, really. Like, the government guys were like, I don't find any guilt in him. I don't find any guilt in him. But the mob is crying out, crucify him. And so, they crucify him. So, injustice even right before Jesus over false accusations. Same thing happened to the apostles as they would preach. Riots would break out. All kinds of wild accusations would come forth. But the Lord would stay with them. And similar injustices happen today. We often don't know which one is what, but sometimes a man will become popular in ministry and others will envy him and so they will throw false accusations at him. Or sometimes someone will gain political enemies for a stand he takes and so others will hurl false accusations at him. They call it character assassinations or smear campaigns that happen sometimes. And sometimes it can get so bad that a faithful man can have uh, his own wife, his own church, everybody wondering if he's really faithful behind the scenes because of these accusations that are coming. It seems like everybody is leaving him, but in Joseph we see there is one who does not leave when that happens, and it's the Lord. The Lord never leaves the side of his chosen ones. He stays by because he knows what really happened. Now, I need to be careful as I say that because it's tempting anytime you're given an accusation to just assume that, oh, well, if they're accusing me, it's obviously a false accusation, right? How dare they bring an accusation against somebody like me? And we're not talking here about an accusation that you wish they would have worded differently or, oh, I can't believe they didn't keep my secret and they weren't loyal to me. Potiphar's wife gave a blatantly false accusation. We're talking about blatantly false accusations. When that happens to God's people, the Lord is with them. All right, let's move on. We'll go through chapter 40 quickly, and I'll draw just one point from it. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him and he attended them. Uh, They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and his dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Uh, 
And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. Three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place the cup in Pharaoh's, hand, uh, Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and the head of his chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged his chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Once again, things start looking up for Joseph, right? We're feeling the pattern. Oh, okay. Now one of Pharaoh's officials is here in the prison, and I've got his ear, and now he has Pharaoh's ear, and everything is going to work out. Look at that. He got restored right to Pharaoh's side, and there he is putting the cup in his hand. But nope, cupbearer forgot about him. So we see there that even when the Lord's people are forgotten, the Lord remembers them. The Lord remembers his people even when they are forgotten. Now that's going to become clear in the next part of the story. This story unfolds kind of like a good joke. You know, a lot of jokes like a thing happened once and then the same thing similarly happens again. And then the third time is the punchline, you know, some of those jokes. This story is like that. On the third time is going to be the punchline. And some of you know how it's going to end. The Lord is going to show that he is very much with Joseph. But for now, we just see that even when he is forgotten, the Lord has not forgotten him. He's remembering him. This happens to many others in the Bible. A woman named Hannah uh, is essentially forgotten by society. She's unable to have children. The priest dismisses her, and it says the Lord remembered Hannah. Right? The Lord remembers those who have been forgotten. The thief hanging up on the cross next to Jesus. We don't even get his name. Just forgotten in history, executed for his crimes. Let's all forget about him and hang him out there. And he looks to Jesus the way that Joseph looked to the cupbearer and said, hey, when you are lifted up, will you remember me? And Jesus says to him, though, though history will forget you, I will remember you, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. And even the same thing happens to Jesus in a sense. Once he's crucified, everybody just kind of forgets about him. Uh, now the ladies don't forget about him. They go and attend to his grave, but the disciples are just like, ah, I guess it's time to move on. You know, he's gone. And so Uh, They rest for the Sabbath, they're over it by the end of the Sabbath, and two men are walking down the road to Emmaus, and a man appears to them, 
And they start explaining to him, yeah, there was this great prophet, Jesus. He was mighty in word and deed. And we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel. But alas, you know, time to move on, right? There are people like moving on from Jesus. And they don't even realize that the man who is walking with them is Jesus risen from the dead, right? So the world is already forgetting about him. But the Lord says, no, I remember my son and I will raise him up from the grave, right? So even when his people are forgotten and when the world moves on from me or you or us, the Lord says, I remember my people. Okay. Let me close down with some application. If you were to receive that, right, if you were to receive the message today that the Lord is with you, if you're one of his people, if you're on a frightening journey, if you're, uh, if you're alone and scared like Joseph, if you are suffering and mistreated like him, if you're forgotten like him, if you're to receive that, how's that going to change your life day in and day out? God's presence with you. Well, the Bible kind of gives us three ways we're supposed to respond to his presence. The main thing is don't be afraid. So don't be afraid, but rely on him for strength. Don't be afraid, but stay true to him. And don't be afraid, but stay on mission. Do what he's called you to do, right? So the first one, you rely on him for strength. People like Joshua in the Bible, people like David, uh, the Lord tells them, I'm with you when you go to battle, right? And so don't be afraid. Right. And then the idea is you got like 50 guys and they have like 50 bazillion guys. And so you're going to need my help. Right? You can't do this in human power. So rely on me for strength. I'm with you. In the same way, Christian, if you are trying to fight sin, if you're trying to fight ongoing sin in your life, if you're trying to work up the courage to bring the gospel to somebody, those aren't things you can do in human power. Uh, the best you can do is trade one sin for another. If you're going to fight one sin, you pick up another and you need so- suddenly you got something else ruined in your life instead of what was ruined in your life before. But with the Lord's power, if you depend on him in the fight against sin, then you have power and strength. He calls us then like Joseph to stay true in our belief and in our practice. You can use Joseph as a guide. You can use Ezra as a guide and many others. All right, so we're called to just keep on the same line with what we teach. As the world changes around us and looks at us and says, man, if if you guys changed your doctrine on marriage now, you'd still be 10 years behind, right? Like that's how they're looking. We wouldn't even be caught up if we started changing what we taught about marriage. We'd still be behind and we're still not changing, right? Why is that? Well, because even when we're lied about, even when we're mistreated, Lord calls us to stay faithful to what he says. And so that is exactly what we will do. It's what he calls you to do as a person and me to do as a leader and us to do as a church. As you're fighting sin, you'll find more of his presence the more faithful you are. And lastly, he calls us to overcome fear and spread the gospel, right? Uh, When Jesus gives that commission, he says, go to all the world, proclaim the gospel to all people. Uh, He says, I'm with you. I'm with you always. And that's because sharing the gospel is scary. If, if you're honest with yourself, probably the main reason you don't share the gospel with people is because it's scary, right? It's social fear. I'm going to tell him that. It's frightening. What's he going to say back? Right? The Lord says, I'm with you, right? Don't be afraid. You can, you can speak that gospel to that coworker, to that family member. Come what may, you can make it because the Lord is with you. So here's that gospel message that you're called to preach. And if you're here today and not as a believer in Jesus, you're called to believe in today. Uh, This presence we have, uh, it's not the default. You're not born with God's close presence upon you like this. No, we're born sinning against God. And sin creates a separation, right? 
And so there are many of us who would try to walk through life and say, yeah, I've been on a journey my whole life, you know, looking for God, finding God, but God is with me on my journey. No, he's not. No, 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 no. The default is born against God, walking against God, right? Uh, Or some of us might say, yeah, I've kind of always believed and, you know, I've always been around the church. And so always, I guess, I've had God with me and God on my side. No, no, you've not. No, we're born against God. We're born sinners walking the wrong way. And everyone who has God's presence in their lives has it because they've turned back to him. And so what the Lord calls every person to do is acknowledge that we have sinned before God. We have created a separation between us and him. But he has come to seek us in his son Jesus, who came and lived without sin and died to pay for sins and rose to guarantee eternal life and is now up on the throne in heaven ruling the universe. This Jesus, we turn to him and receive him. Now we have God in our lives again. If you want what Joseph has, if you want that presence of God with you, it's available to you right now and you can receive it. Turn from sin and receive Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.